Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Pushkin. Nobody likes paperwork. Nobody likes bureaucracy. Nobody likes a fussy government. Except, what if a particular bit of paperwork could save a life? Or a hundred lives? Or... 100,000 lives? You might want to try to figure that out, right? I'm Tim Harford, and I present a cautionary tale with a difference this week. The mighty Malcolm Gladwell is your storyteller. As you may know, Malcolm hosts the blockbuster nerd storytelling podcast of our time, Revisionist History, and he is back with an amazing new season. And not only is he back with an amazing new season, to which you should all subscribe immediately, he is also sitting in front of his microphone with me right now. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Tim. Thank you for those kind words. Well, they're, they're all deserved. Um, and we're going to listen uh, to one of the episodes from uh, the, the new season of Revisionist History in a second. But just lay out what was it about this story in triplicate that, that caught your attention? I read the, this, the big book on um, the Sacklers, the people who created who owned the company that created OxyContin. And on sort of page, it's one of those, and I'm sure you read the book, books the same way, you know, in the footnotes on page five, you know, 548, there is this reference to a study. Uh, and I was just like, wait, what? I didn't, I, it was <laughs> one of those kind of things like didn't make any sense. So I looked up the study and I read the study. And I was like, this is astonishing. That was a little acorn from which the the oak grew um and then i just sort of puzzled over how to tell a story around people are about to listen to the episode so we, let's not even say how it begins because we're going to listen to it right now and then and and please stay where you are and uh, because i want to ask you lots of questions uh, immediately afterwards it's a remarkable story as you will hear 
And so, Cautionary Tales presents from the new season of Revisionist History, to which you should all subscribe in all the usual places, I present Malcolm Gladwell with In Triplicate. When I was in my 20s, many years ago, I was a reporter for the Washington Post, a newsroom the size of a football field. Phones ringing, keyboards clattering, the glory days of print journalism. I want you to describe what is the status and position of a Washington Post reporter in Washington, D.C. in 1989? Well, in general, godlike, because the whole city ran on politics and news, and there weren't many organizations that produced it excellently, and the Post was sort of the place that everyone cared about. That's my friend Michael Spector. He and I were both on the health and science beat for the Post. If somebody cured something, discovered something, solved something, or screwed something up, we were on it. In those days, it seemed like everyone read everything we wrote. Well, they did. I mean, there is an exception, which is we were in the science pod, and at least at the Post, that was considered like, why would smart people write about science when they could write about the White House and wear yellow ties? But in general, we had big readerships, particularly in the, when we wrote about science policy. We sat at the center of a giant ecosystem of lobbyists, lawmakers, aides, bureaucrats, policy wonks, who tried to get us to see the world their way. If you called someone and said you were from the Washington Post, they called you back. I used to listen to Michael every day on the phone with a source on Capitol Hill. That individual had access to everything, but he didn't mind ratting people out. It was like heaven. I had a couple people like that. It was heaven. I remember once where uh, you get the plain brown wrappers with stuff inside of it, because nothing, of course, was digital in those years. You would get the mysterious phone call, and you'd have to decide whether to return it. So there's one member of this ecosystem that I'm most interested in. Ready? Sid Wolf. Sid Wolf. I I love Sid. I loved him then. I love him now. But, you know, yeah, he is a particular kind of guy. I think I was the most skeptical of Sid. Yeah, because you were like a right-wing lunatic. I was a right-wing lunatic. And it was a right-wing time. Sidney M. Wolf, MD, versus me 30 years ago when I was a right-wing lunatic. I was different then which I offer as at least a small explanation for my behavior in the story I'm about to tell you. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. This season is devoted entirely to experiments. And this episode is about what happens when an experiment teaches us an important lesson and we don't listen. Sid Wolf came to Washington, D.C. in the 1960s as a young doctor. He went to work as a postgraduate fellow at the National Institutes of Health, part of the same class as Tony Fauci. One day in 1971, someone told him that half of the saline solution being supplied to American hospitals was contaminated with bacteria. And Sid said, oh, when are they going to take it off the market? And the person said, they aren't. Because if we do, hospitals will run out of IV fluid and we'll have a disaster on our hands. 
And Sid said, That can't be right. There have to be other sources of IV fluid. He did his research, found out there were other sources, and went public. Called the press, got his friend, the political crusader Ralph Nader, to hold a press conference, and the bad IV fluid was pulled from the market. Sid had found his calling as a consumer advocate. I am sick and tired of the patronizing attitude of the American Medical Association towards American patients. Patients Sid was unstoppable. He started something called the Public Citizens Health Research Group and became one of the angriest voices in Washington. As many of you know, our organization has now for 25 years been the most outspoken critic of the FDA. More than 50 times we've submitted petitions, sometimes resulting in lawsuits against the agency to try and get them to do what we think the law requires them. In the C-SPAN archives, there's practically a SID division. SID against the drug companies, SID against the doctors, SID against the FDA. It is clear that of the 17 years since we have been running the Health Research Group and watching the FDA, this is by far the worst period of time ever. Sid didn't like anyone except those who were willing to join him on the lonely ice flow of his 60s radicalism. Okay, that's not fair. It's not that Sid disliked people. It was never personal for him. Sid's battle was with institutions. Sid believed that bureaucracies and companies and legislatures would behave better only when constrained by the right laws, the right regulations, and the right kind of relentless nudging from people like Sid. He was the nudge of Washington, D.C. Sid's very smart and very colorful and a great quote, but there's only one way, and that's Sid's way. You don't have like a deep, meaningful conversation on both sides with Sid, but some people, and he was one, were just excellent at knowing what we needed and what we wanted and how to package it, and that was Sid. I hadn't thought of Sid Wolf in years, but then I started reading about someone named Paul Madden, one of those forgotten figures from the mid-century. If you lived in California in the 1940s, you would hear Madden from time to time on the radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. There may be harder jobs than breaking up a narcotic ring. I don't know. I've never seen one. Especially difficult is the job of rounding up a band of narcotic peddlers including the brains of the gang. Madden was a progressive. The progressives believed that government could fix things, that systems and regulations and rules properly written could make the world a fairer place. Progressives were activists, full of zeal. In 1939, Paul Madden was appointed to run the California Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement. He was the man responsible for stopping the use of illegal drugs in the state of California, a job he tackled with enthusiasm and his customary hyperbole. Let me quote directly from his writing on the effects of marijuana. Madden wrote that the user might, quote, believe himself so small that he is afraid to step off the curbstone into the street, or he may feel himself of enormous size and of superhuman strength and passion, and in that condition commit crimes altogether foreign to his nature." Unquote. But because Paul Madden was a progressive, he didn't just fulminate against a problem. He had a whole carefully thought-out scheme for using the enlightened power of government to fix it. 
Consider the great fear of anti-drug crusaders of that era, which was that doctors might be driving drug addiction. What if the person gets the script from the doctor and goes down and keeps some of the drugs for himself and then sells some of the drugs on the street? Then you're going to have the problem of the initiation of of new addicts, potentially, if, if that happens. David Courtright, who is America's leading historian of the drug trade, says that people were worried that patients could walk into the doctor's office asking for an addictive drug like morphine, and the doctor would just give it to them. So say there were a small number of doctors who are relatively unscrupulous, who are simply writing prescriptions for maintenance, and much of that drug may end up being diverted. How would I identify the doctor who's doing that? So one of the things you might do is send an informer to the doctor And he would try to persuade, typically it was a he, he would try to persuade the doctor to write a prescription. In California, Paul Madden looks at that practice of running sting operations against shady doctors and says, that's a crude and inefficient way of dealing with the problem. Remember, he's a good progressive, a man who believes in systems and procedures. So Madden decides to create a bureaucratic solution. First, Madden makes a list of all the prescription painkillers that he considers dangerously addictive. Morphine, opium, codeine, chloral hydrate. And then he convinces the state legislature to create a new regulation for doctors. Chapter 3, Article 1, Section 11166.06 of the California Narcotics Act, the Madden Amendment of 1939. The prescription blanks shall be printed on distinctive paper, serial number of the book being shown on each form, and also each form being serially numbered. Each prescription blank shall be printed in triplicate, with one blank attached to the book in such a manner that it will be readily removed, while two of the blanks shall be perforated for removal. Meaning, every time a physician prescribes one of the listed painkillers, they have to use a special state-issued prescription pad, where every prescription page comes equipped with two additional carbon copies. To use a contemporary turn of phrase, he wants to create a backup of every narcotic prescription in the state. The first copy was to be kept at the office of the prescribing physician for a minimum of two years, available for scrutiny at any time by one of Madden's team of inspectors. Copy number two had to be kept by the pharmacist for two years. And number three had to be mailed by the pharmacist to the Bureau of Narcotics head office in San Francisco. A record of physician and pharmacist behavior in triplicate. A textbook example of progressive big brother in action. Now, why did I think of Sid Wolf when I heard about Paul Madden? Because Madden seemed to me like Sid 1.0, the 1930s edition. Different context and emphasis, of course, but the same playbook, the same urgency, the same relentlessness. The government needs to fix things. And here is my 29-point plan to accomplish that, which I'm forwarding over to you right now. Call me when you get it. Right away. This is too big to wait. So, you know, Sid was, his hair was always on fire about something. My memories of Sid is, you would never know when you would get off the phone. That's true. That's true. I mean, I've even talked to him recently about some stuff I've done. And um, 
he'll not just talk to you. Then the information starts flowing. In those days, the facts started to churn because that's how we got stuff. But Sid was like, I would go out to lunch and if there was a pile of fax paper on my desk, it would be like, Sid struck. How many forests were sacrificed to feed Sid's fax machine? God only knows. In any case, I moved on. I left the Washington Post and forgot all about Sid and his fixations. And then I heard about an experiment. And it all came flooding back. As a loyal listener to cautionary tales, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, and you are. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet, but you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix may not be able to rewrite history or take on society's problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home. Pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalised pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians know your local pests the best. So even though they don't know in-depth world history, you can bet they know how to make your pest problem history. And with customised plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Often, it will be an opioid medication. Beginning in the late 1990s, a catastrophe unfolded in cities and towns around the United States. Opioid overdoses. People suffering a cascade of terrifying effects. Pinpoint pupils. Labored breathing. Respiratory arrest. Choking. Purple lips. Loss of consciousness. And 
in what has now been over 800,000 cases, death. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. At the heart of the crisis was a class of new, powerful painkillers that came on the market in the 1990s, especially OxyContin, launched in 1996 by the Purdue Pharmaceutical Company. OxyContin is highly addictive, and Purdue promoted it to doctors more heavily than any other painkiller in history. By 2002, Purdue had thousands of salespeople around the country pushing OxyContin. This went on for more than a decade, until doctors were prescribing $3 billion worth of OxyContin a year. But even after 20 years of the opioid epidemic, there were all kinds of questions. Like, was OxyContin the cause of the overdose epidemic or just a symptom of something deeper? And even more puzzling, why didn't opioids cause the same level of devastation everywhere? Take Massachusetts and New York, two states side by side. If you run every significant fact about Massachusetts and New York through an algorithm, you'll find there are almost no two states more alike. Same population profile, same basic economy, same levels of poverty, very similar rural-urban mix. You'd think they would have had similar experiences with overdoses. They didn't. Massachusetts has had a bloodbath. New York, not so much. Same thing with New York and New Jersey. Super similar states by any measure. So why did New Jersey suffer so much more than its neighbor? Purdue would end up in bankruptcy court as a result of multiple lawsuits launched against them for misleading marketing practices. And not long ago, four economists, Abby Alpert, William Evans, Ethan Lieber, and David Powell, realized that the mountains of internal Purdue documents unearthed in those lawsuits might hold some answers. I mean, so there were hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents, some of which was not very interesting. That's Abby Alpert, lead author of the paper the four of them ended up publishing, Origins of the Opioid Crisis and Its Enduring Impacts. But then when we, when we happened upon the focus group research, especially, and, and the launch plan, um, that really was the basis for a lot of what we talk about in this paper. Buried in that mountain of documents was an internal Purdue report on a series of focus groups that the company held with physicians. This was in the spring of 1995, right before the launch of OxyContin. The focus group report runs to almost 60 pages, and in that long, buried document, one phrase kept popping up again and again. The phrase coined by Paul Madden half a century earlier, triplicate prescriptions. So I had never heard of a triplicate program, and it's not something that was being discussed in the research on opioids. I mean, why would it be? Nobody really liked triplicates. For decades, no one followed California's lead in imposing this special requirement for prescribing painkillers. Drug makers, of course, hated the idea. So did doctors and state lawmakers. In the early 1980s, the state of Texas did start a triplicate program. 
and the State Narcotics Division in Austin had to hire 33 data entry clerks, who in the first year mailed out 27,800 triplicate prescription pads to doctors around the state. The doctors then had to write a check for $7 for every pad they used, mail the check back to Austin, use the special pad every time they prescribe anything off the restricted list, keep the pink copy in their office for two years, send the green and the blue copy with the patient to the pharmacist, etc., etc. I mean, triplicate was the kind of bureaucratic nitpickiness that drives people in the medical world crazy. The few states that did try out triplicate programs usually drop them. By the early 1990s, there were just five states with triplicate programs in place. California, the pioneer, Texas, which somehow managed to stick it out, and then Illinois, Idaho, and New York. Five states with warehouses full of carbon copies of doctors' prescriptions. Every time you pick up that prescription pad, it was like, boy, I'm prescribing and someone's watching me. And that's what a lot of folks call the chilling effect. Linda Wastilla, who teaches at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, she did her dissertation on triplicate programs. The chilling effect she's talking about was the knowledge that physicians in those states had that their behavior was being watched, that there was a permanent record of every prescription they wrote in three places on paper, not in some abstract, invisible computer file up in the cloud. Presumably, each physician has got a filing cabinet in his or her office just full of prescription forms, which they're holding on to for years. Right. So it's, it is a powerful psychological reminder of the way you have handled this specific kind of medication. Exactly. And the doctor knows that there's a corresponding filing cabinet somewhere in the state capitol with a team of investigators attached who can look at every prescription and see the name of the patient, the name of the pharmacist, and the name of which doctor has the biggest bulging file. A file that says, just by its size, something fishy may be going on. This is exactly what Purdue Pharmaceutical discovered when it did its focus group with doctors in 1995, just prior to the launch of OxyContin. One of their sessions was in a triplicate state in Houston, Texas, and Purdue's takeaway after meeting with a group of Houston doctors was clear. Quote, the triplicate laws seem to have a dramatic effect on the product usage behavior of the physicians. It went on. The mere thought of the government questioning their judgment created a high level of anxiety in the focus group room among the doctors. Unquote. Purdue looked at that high level of anxiety and asked, is it even worth marketing OxyContin in triplicate states at all? Years later, Abby Alpert's group of economists finds this long-forgotten focus group report, and they realize they'd stumbled on a beautiful example of a natural experiment. Natural experiments are the economist's dream. You don't have to create a treatment group and a control group, then laboriously compare what happens to the two groups. Someone else has created the experiment for you. In this case, the someone else was Purdue. A third of the American population lived in the triplicate states. Those states got passed over by the Purdue marketing squads. The rest of the American population lived in states without Big Brother looking over their doctor's shoulders. They got the full Purdue treatment. 
If you wanted to know how much of the opioid crisis was caused by OxyContin, all you had to do was compare what happened to the triplicate states with everywhere else. So that's what Alpert did. And what she and her colleagues found was that the triplicate rule was everything. What we found was that, in fact, the non-triplicate states had much more OxyContin use per capita than the triplicate states, almost twice as much in most years. More OxyContin means more OxyContin overdoses. And not just that, because many of those who got addicted to opioids with OxyContin went on to get addicted to heroin and fentanyl. We see very a quick increase in overdose deaths in the non-triplicate states uh, and much slower growth in the triplicate states. And these trends continue even 20 years after the launch. Let's go back to comparing outcomes in New York and Massachusetts. New York was triplicate. Massachusetts was not. So how much of a difference did that single requirement make? The two extra carbon copies on the New York prescription pad? Well, if New York had Massachusetts' opioid overdose rate between the years 2000 and 2019, an additional 25,000 New Yorkers would have died of overdoses. 25,000. Not only that, it turns out that economic growth is higher in triplicate states than non-triplicate states. Health outcomes of babies are better. And violent crime is lower in triplicate states. Astonishingly lower. As much as 25%. Exactly 80 years after Paul Madden wrote his amendment to the California Narcotics Act, his bureaucratic nitpicking gets vindicated by social science. And who else gets vindicated? Sidney M. Wolf, M.D. As a loyal listener to cautionary tales, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, and you are. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix may not be able to rewrite history or take on society's problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home 
pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalised pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians know your local pests the best. So even though they don't know in-depth world history, you can bet they know how to make your pest problem history. And with customised plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. In the early 1990s, someone in the White House wondered what was known about the value of triplicate programs. The requests got kicked over to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA. And NIDA rounded up everyone who might know something about triplicates and invited them to a conference at a hotel near its headquarters in Rockville, Maryland. So you attended the symposium? Yes. Linda Wastilla, who had done her dissertation on triplicates, was one of the attendees. I do remember the venue, and I do remember, this is really ridiculous, we couldn't have coffee. NIDA was very hardcore about these kinds of things. They wouldn't sponsor anything that had an addiction potential, including caffeine. So at any rate, um, what I remember about that was sort of the excitement of this is the first big thing we've had about trying to control opioid use in the United States. This is 1991. OxyContin will be introduced in 1996, five years later. But opioid overdoses were still high enough in those years that people were starting to get worried about the problem. I was a pharmacist with a PhD. There weren't many pharmacists with PhDs. So it was like, wow, this is it. And I believed in a lot of these policies. The pain specialist Russell Portnoy was at the NIDA Symposium. He would later do as much as anyone to promote the aggressive use of OxyContin. He talked about the problem of under-prescribing opioids. Someone from the American Pharmaceutical Association was there to say how strongly the industry's biggest trade group was opposed to any kind of federally mandated triplicate requirement. After all, this was 1991. Why were we promoting some half-baked idea from 1939? But here and there, there were other voices. An African-American doctor who worked in a tough neighborhood in Brooklyn, Gerald Dees, said this, I wish that anyone who opposes triplicate prescription programs could walk with me into the real world where these regulations are saving lives, unquote. And then, at the end of the meeting, who gets up to speak? Sid Wolf, of course. Because what is Sid's great cause in the late 80s and early 90s? It's triplicates. Sid has decided that what America needs is a national version of Chapter 3, Article 1, Section 11166.06 of the California Narcotics Act. Sid, how are you? It's been a long time. So when I see Sid's name in the conference proceedings, I realized I had to talk to Sid again. After all these years. So I called him up. Sid always answers his phone. And right away, he reminds me of how we used to run into each other in the Adams Morgan neighborhood of Washington, D.C. We once played pool together. Dan's pool room. The last time I went into Dan's, 
you couldn't walk in there because there were about 10 people chain smoking. So I'd never been in there again. I think it's no longer around at all. Just hearing that voice again, that low rumble, the eyebrow raised at Dan's pool room, brought back all kinds of memories. I think I was nervous. Thank you for joining me. Um, I would like to take a walk down memory lane with you. And I want to talk about triplicate prescriptions. I know this has been an issue that occupied you at various points in your career, but I just wanted you, I want to start at the beginning. When did the subject of triplicate prescriptions first come to your attention? I became aware of it, I would say, in the early 80s, late 70s, something like that. Even back in the 1980s, you are uh, concerned about the problems being caused by opioids. 30 years before the current opioid epidemic, you this is something that's very much a matter of concern for you. Well, it's a matter of concern for several reasons. I would attend FDA advisory committee meetings, and not a small number of them had to do with opioids. And there were already some pro- problems with opioids in those days. And Sid, like Paul Madden two generations before him, had become convinced that focusing on doctors was a big part of the solution. Let them know they were being watched with a few file cabinets of carbon copies. I mean, the data, which you've seen, showing what happens in a very short period of time after some of these states implement these triplicate prescription programs is astounding. At the NIDA meeting in 1991, Sid stood up and made the case for a national triplicate program. He said, in effect, California started an experiment. New York and Illinois and others have joined, and the results of the experiment are clear. It works. In a perfect world, had everyone listened to what NIDA was saying in 91, what all you guys were saying back in 91, we would have had a very different and much less damaging opioid epidemic in of the last 20 years, right? There's no question about that, because it's a clear public health problem. He's right. A national triplicate program would clearly have slowed the advance of OxyContin. 841,000 people have died of drug overdoses since the 1990s. How many of those would now be alive? In 1993, Sid published a monograph reiterating the need to get serious about opioid prescriptions. It almost certainly made its way to the health and science desk at the Washington Post. Did anyone take you up on it? No. Why not? And I, I don't know why. I, the, I bring this up only because um, I, and one of the reasons this issue interests me so much was that in the early 90s, when you were thinking very seriously about the importance of triplicates, the person covering the FDA, the health bureaucracy, and science, all those kinds of medical science and all for the Washington Post was me. That's how we met. We met, but back then, my sympathies did not lie with the Sid Wolves of the world. I didn't share Sid's belief that government could fix everything. I thought medicine was full of trustworthy, judicious professionals who did not need Big Brother looking over their shoulder. In my time on the health and science desk at the Washington Post, I was in my 20s, a kid, too young for nuances. Sid was just the guy who called me up and wouldn't let you off the phone and sent you so many papers and reports and polemics that you gave up and just threw them in the trash. 
Sid Wolf was so alert to the frailty of institutions that he seemed to me like Chicken Little. I'll be candid. At the time, I thought you were way off to the left. I thought you were, you know, my position was much more sympathetic to Big Pharma. I thought you were just a kind of crazy 60s radical who was always, who didn't believe in drugs. Now I realize no one was more wrong than me. On this issue, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have died in this country because we didn't pay attention to what you were saying in 1991. Well, all I can say is I certainly have been taught by a number of other people that I'm some sort of a 60s radical. So uh, I do not blame you or anyone else that thought that I was some wild-eyed. But Sid, I blame myself. It is almost certainly the case that that monograph you wrote about triplicate prescriptions was sent to me at the Washington Post. It is almost certainly the case that I did not read it. And it is almost certainly the case that had I read it and had I taken it seriously and had I called you up and had I educated myself and had I written a story about it in the Washington Post, that maybe it would have made some small difference. Or even a book about it. (laughs) Or or even a book about it. I didn't do any of those things. In the 1930s, the rest of America dismissed what Paul Madden was saying because they thought Paul Madden was overbearing and hysterical. In the 1990s, I dismissed what Sid Wolf was saying because we thought Sid Wolf was overbearing and hysterical. We violated all of us the first rule of learning from experiments, which is to judge the message, not the messenger. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Sid Wolf said the sky was falling back in 1991. And guess what? The sky fell. Malcolm, that is an amazing story. And I wanted to begin by asking you about something you said, which is that no one was more wrong than me. I don't hear people saying that very often. Oh, uh, yeah, well, (laughs) I was wrong. Um, I I find it's very, I actually, I don't understand people's reluctance to admit that they were wrong because once you're in the habit of doing it, it makes your life so much easier. Yeah. So much work is done. Cognitive dissonance is the you know the psychological uh, phrase to describe the enormous lengths human beings go to reconcile contradictions in their own thinking. Um, you can avoid cognitive dissonance just by saying, "Well, I was wrong about X, so I don't longer have to square it with my worldview. <laughs> my worldview has moved yeah. on." Right. Well, yeah, and this is all what uh, twenty-five years ago, nearly thirty years ago. So, I mean, is there a, is there a a time horizon at which point you're willing to, or do you admit you were wrong five minutes ago or, or six months well, I ago? I admit I was wrong all the time. I, 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 I think it's useful to practice this as much as possible. Um, just because, like I said, um, I don't think it, you know, it's easy to, to admit about you were wrong about something that happened long ago, but there are usually few consequences to that. It's harder to admit you were wrong about something that happened that just happened, but it's really useful to do that. You can you can just say, you know what, I sent this ass- nasty email, and if you send another email that says, actually, you know what, I shouldn't, 
I, I don't think that. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Blah, blah, blah. You, then you've just kind of cleared away. Uh, but intellectually, it's what allows you, um, it's a kind of condition of curiosity. So the only way for curiosity really to work is if you open up all of your own received wisdom to reexamination. The minute you say, I'm willing to renounce my previous belief because someone else, I've learned something new, that yeah. um, is what permits your curiosity to go forward in an unfettered way. Well, I think that curiosity, it really, the, the foundation of curiosity is humility. It's, it's that acknowledgement that there's something you don't know. I mean, if you think you know everything about a subject, there's no, there's no possibility for curiosity. There's no space for curiosity. But the moment you say, oh, I don't know, then the space to ask the question opens up. And I suppose the next step is not only do I not know, but that thing that I thought I did know, um, I didn't know that either. It is easier for journalists to be have humility and change their mind than it is for you know, a scientist who has spent a career developing a certain position, for them to renounce their life's work is really an, you know, a big deal, really hard to do. And so you often see people who will, academics or intellectuals, who will defend previous positions they've held, maybe past the point where those positions are worthy of defense. And I understand psychologically why they're doing that, because it would be really hard for them to say I wasted my life. But a journalist, yes. we are different. We're just we're just reporting what other people say. So if we say, oh, actually, I got it wrong, it's fine. Uh, we, our reputation is not at stake. By the way, and also, we're, you know, because we're skimming over the surface, putting out so much more stuff that to admit one thing we did out of 20 is wrong is actually, it's without consequence. Yes. And there's a particular kind of mistake as well. As a journalist, you want to always get the facts right. You know, the quotes need to be right. The, you know, the numbers need to be right. And, and of course, they aren't always, but you try. But the mistake that you were facing up to in that episode was of, of a mistake of priorities, which is that, and that's always imponderable. Like, what should I have been paying attention to? Should I have spent more time on some other thing? And that's, that's not the same kind of error as... I spelled this guy's name wrong. Yeah. Although I would actually phrase the mistake I made slightly different. The reason, the core error was that I was blinded by my ideology. And it, it's a reminder of how dangerous having kind of ideological convictions is to a journalist. Um, that I, uh, I was particularly compared to today, just far more. I was a kind of conservative activist at that time. Um, yeah. And I had very strong convictions about drug companies and why I thought they were unfairly maligned, particularly by journalists, and very strong feelings that a lot of what passed for consumer activism was kind of nonsensical or even harmful. And as opposed to simply being, I should have been agnostic on those questions. Sometimes yeah. pharma does good things. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes, you know, but I was an agnostic. That's what I'm getting at. I, yeah. I, I had failed my journalistic duty to keep my mind open. And one of the things that we're supposed to do when, when we're not sure is instead of relying on ideology, we, we run an experiment. 
and we go out and collect some information or we pay attention to, to an experiment that someone else has run. And the whole season of revisionist history is about experiments. And one detail, though, that, that struck me as interesting about the intriplicate story is that Purdue didn't seem to need to run an experiment to understand the effect of the triplicate form-filling requirement. So while, while you were of the opinion that it was probably, what was the phrase you used, a bureaucratic nitpickiness, you, you, know, you, you had this preconception that it's, it's probably just a bunch of unnecessary paperwork. And there's this genuine debate out there as to whether this is going to help or it's not going to help. Purdue had no doubt. They were sure that it was going to be really bad for their business. And that's why they just decided to ignore the, the marketing push in these in these states. So that, yeah. so they knew, or at least they thought they knew. Well, they had done, so they had done focus group research. I mean, the crucial, I think they would have considered the focus group research in their world to be an experiment. It's not really an no. experiment, but they did gather data on the question. They were, I think, legitimately surprised at the extent to which um, tripicate legislation would make doctors hostile to um, to OxyContin. I think that did shock them. And yeah. um, but you're right. What's interesting is they didn't come back at it another way, or they just kind of walked away from New York and California and Texas and Illinois. Um, yeah, which yeah. are big places. Right? Yeah, so it's, a, it's a lot of people to ignore. It's like third, I think it's a th it comes out to a third of the country that they decided to kind of. Um, but it's you know it's uh, you know one one interpretation of that is it's a reminder of just how much market research influences decisions by companies. And those of us who are not within large corporations, I think, underestimate these guys. You know, movie companies care a lot about what the what the audience in, you know, Waterloo, Ohio thinks of their latest release in a way that would strike the rest of us as weird. But they really, they place a huge amount of emphasis on that kind of stuff. But one of the things that struck me stepping back from this story is, um, huh, well, in a digital age, all of this oversight of doctors and what they're prescribing and where it's going, this is a solved problem, right? It's now incredibly easy or should be incredibly easy to keep track of everything and 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 not only that to to learn from you know the side effects you know what's happening is is this drug working is it is it leading to problems is it doing what we was promised all of this stuff in principle it's all solved by digitization in practice have we made any progress on that so the argument with um with triplicate prescriptions is yes, you can duplicate the triplicate prescription digitally, but all of the evidence suggests that that is not as strong a break on physician behavior as the paper form. Something about the forcing the doctor to fill out an actual paper prescription and then mail off the paper prescriptions that have piled up in his office every month to the government makes the doctor start thinking about their prescribing behavior in a way that having a silent digital kind of uh, record of what they're doing does not. So yeah. what we're really interested in doing here is it's not about the, um, the regulatory function, the bit of information that is given to the regulator that allows the regulator to check on what 
uh, doctors are doing. That's not what's crucial here. What we want to do is we want to change the doctor's thinking in the moment when the patient is in front of them. Yeah. What drug am I choosing? And something yeah. about paper makes is salient for a doctor in a way that digital's not. I'm completely persuaded by your argument that the paper forms were essential in changing what the doctors did in this particular case. But um, I can't help but think of one of the cautionary tales we, we released last year about Harold Shipman, who was a British doctor who murdered maybe 250 of his patients. I mean, it was just extraordinary. He is, he's by some measures the, the most prolific serial killer who ever lived. And a lot of that was because he had certain privileges as a doctor. He would sign the death certificates himself and tell the police it was all fine. He'd checked and everything was fine. But if there had been some centralized collection, it wouldn't have had to be very sophisticated, some centralized collection of the death rates and some a very, very simple monitoring rule, that would have been flagged up. Something very, very strange is happening in this little town of Hyde near Manchester in the northwest of England. Um, it may be nothing but somebody should go and have a look. And that you don't get from the paper. That you need a spreadsheet somewhere. Agreed. I think we're talking about two different phenomena. One is a kind of micro-level behavioral nudge, and one is a macro-level um, analytic capacity. And I think you're absolutely right. Malcolm, we've, we've heard the intricate story. It is one of, uh, one of many experiments that you tell stories about in the new season of revisionist history. So give us a sense of what other experiments you're looking at over the course of the season. We have the, the first two episodes are about what I call magic wand experiments. And um, a term I think I made up, although one never knows. A magic wand experiment is an experiment that you would do if you could, if the scientist could wave a magic wand and wave away all logistical, practical, ethical, laws of nature constraints. So, by so, so a thought experiment. But it's more than that, because sometimes with a yeah. thought experiment, you're still grounded in the real world. What I wanted to do was to take people entirely out of the real world, yeah, into the realm of fantasy. It's your fantasy experiment. Um, and my gut was that every scientist has a magic wand in the back of their head. And it's either pointless to talk about it because it can never be done, or they feel ashamed because it's a little bit questionable, right? So I call yeah. up all these people and just said, what's your magic wand? And everyone, I was absolutely right. Everyone, I, every, every scientist, thinker, and whatever that I called up and said, what's your magic wand? They immediately, like not even, oh yeah, here it is. Malcolm, that was delightful. It's occasionally dark, wonderful. The season is, of course, on the Revisionist History podcast feed. Everybody must be subscribed by now. But for those who aren't, how many episodes in the new season? 10. Always 10. 10, 10 new stories on revisionist history. Malcolm Gladwell, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. It's been so much fun. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could smarter you do with better travel rewards? A free flight, a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.